Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. We're joined once again this week by Vikram Talalikar, a specialist in reproductive medicine at University College London Hospitals, and he's also an honorary associate professor in women's health at University College. In part one, we focused on the burden of the menopause and perimenopause, and this week we'll be digging deeper into the menopause, polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, Turner syndrome, and estrogen deficiency. So let's dive straight in, Vikram. So let's talk a little bit about uh, treatments for menopause and a score of different problems that can arise from them. So HRT, hormone replacement therapy, is well known to non-clinicians. And and Vikram, we, we, although the majority of our audience are healthcare practitioners, we do have sort of interested members of the general public listening in. So HRT is known to a lot of people. Tell us what it can do to help women through this massive hormonal change and tell us about other treatments. Okay, so I'm not going to talk a lot about lifestyle. It's self-explanatory. Lifestyle changes can help during menopause with symptoms. Uh, Things like concentrating on a healthy diet, regular exercise as per government recommendation, uh, stopping smoking or avoiding smoking, uh, alcohol within social limits, all that would be helpful because that keeps your lifestyle healthy, your bones, your heart healthy, your brain healthy, and of course prevents many of the chronic diseases. Alternative therapies is yet another option for menopausal symptoms. A lot of women decide to use herbs, herbal preparations, which may be available over-the-counter, acupuncture, acupressure, and other therapies like hypnotherapy, which have been popular in the field of menopause for suppressing unpleasant symptoms. These don't have much scientific evidence behind them. Often the long-term safety data for many of the preparations is missing, so they're not medically recommended. However, many women do continue to use these for symptom suppression. And again, as long as you're going to a reputable practitioner and we know that there are certainly no big long-term risks, then women can make their choice and continue to take the alternative therapies. The non-HRT medications, so you can use some medications to suppress unpleasant symptoms like hot flushes, night sweats, uh, low mood, depression, sleep issues, And these are mainly antidepressants, SSRIs or SNRI group of drugs. You can also use gabapentin or pregabalin, which are anti-epileptic or painkiller medications, which have a similar effect on these symptoms. You can also have a drug called clonidine, which is an anti-blood pressure, high blood pressure medication, uh, which tends to calm down the hot flushes and night sweat. These tend to be more popular with women who do not wish to take hormones because they don't think it's the right thing for them or if they cannot take hormone replacement because they have medical problems like they have breast cancer or estrogen sensitive cancer or major blood clots in the past so they would be high risk for using hormone replacement. The non-hormonal medications I just mentioned are useful, but they're not as effective as the estrogen replacement or HRT because they are slightly less efficacious. And they do have their own set of drawbacks or side effects, such as they can make you a bit drowsy. Uh, They can sometimes make your mouth dry. They can constipate you. uh, And sometimes dizziness with clonidine is the biggest issue. You can have a low blood pressure that can sometimes make you feel very dizzy. And so for all those reasons, they're not very popular for managing menopause symptoms. 
And if you can take HRT and you're suffering from symptoms, these would be second line. HRT would still be your first line best medication. HRT uh, is basically replacing estrogen and progesterone as part of hormone replacement. In the modern times, we'll now also add testosterone for some women, depending on their symptoms. And it's replacing these three hormones just like you had them before you went through your menopausal transition. There are various ways of taking HRT, but the main indication, or in fact, the only indication for HRT right now is to improve quality of life by suppressing unpleasant menopausal symptoms. And all symptoms will usually disappear. It takes about two to three weeks for a woman who starts HRT to start feeling better. That's the average time. And by three to four months, you see that the HRT is really working for you or not. You'll get most of your answers if you use it for three to four months. It can take away the brain fogging, the low mood, the sleep difficulties, hot flashes, night sweat. It can take away some of the symptoms like skin itching, vaginal dryness, painful intercourse. It can make your bladder function better. It can, of course, take away some of the uncommon or, or sort of non-classical symptoms as well. And that includes changes to skin, changes to, say, dryness of eyes, other changes, for example, changes that happen to joints and bones and heart. So the HRT has advantage over other medication because the estrogen can protect your bones from osteoporosis. It protects you from heart disease, especially if you take HRT within the first 10 years of going through the menopause. And it will take away some of the cognitive symptoms you have right now, including the brain fogging, the loss of confidence, and the lack of libido, which is the sexual side of things. And so HRT has all these benefits in terms of lifestyle, symptoms, bone and heart and potentially cognitive side of things, which need to be balanced against some of the side effects or the risks that come with it. And when we talk about side effects or risk, of course, the side effects can be minor and they're usually for the first two to three months of using HRT and they will disappear. And they can be things like a bit of breast tenderness, a bit of breast pain, irregular bleeding because you've just started hormones, a bit of nausea, a sick feeling, and sometimes a bit of headaches. And these will usually pass off in two to three months, as I said. The risks that we talk about are mainly three. Risk of blood clotting or stroke, risk of breast cancer, and risk of endometrial cancer. If you look at risk of blood clots or stroke, then as long as you use HRT in a non-oral route, and that's mainly for women who are approaching 60 or 60 plus, then you get over that risk of strokes or blood clots because when you use HRT in a transdermal manner, that is through the skin, either as a gel patch or a spray, and you don't swallow an estrogen tablet orally or a progesterone tablet orally, then it doesn't seem to increase your risk of blood clotting or stroke. And that's thought to be because it bypasses the liver where the clotting is triggered. So one of the ways we come around the increased risk of stroke or blood clotting, which was traditionally associated with some other forms of HRT, is by giving hormones through the skin rather than the oral route. If you look at the risk of endometrial cancer or womb cancer, then that risk is very small 
as long as you provide enough progesterone, which balances the estrogen in the HRT. So we often say if you're taking a cyclical HRT, a monthly bleed HRT, then you should have progesterone for at least 12 to 14 days of the month. Or you can choose a non-bleed HRT where you have progesterone throughout the month. And that would make it non-bleed. You don't have to have a monthly period. And in those situations, as long as you are balancing with enough progesterone and you're not compromising on that, you will be able to prevent the risk of endometrial cancer. Finally, the breast cancer. This is the biggest worry. This is the one reason why many women or doctors will not want to prescribe or take HRT. Now, modern HRT is thought to be body identical, which means it kind of matches body's own estrogen progesterone very closely. And so the risks with using such an HRT, estrogen progesterone combined, if a woman uses it for five years or longer, then the extra risk that often comes with such hormones is somewhere between one to five in a thousand women. That's a very, very, very tiny extra risk of breast cancer. One to five in thousand women who will use HRT for five years. And that small increased risk, which is attributed to HRT, has to be balanced against all those benefits I talked about. The benefits for bone, for heart, for symptoms, for quality of life. And most women now think that the risk is so small, the absolute increase in risk is so small, that actually the benefits of not dying from a hip fracture or a heart disease, which is a bigger risk, outweighs that very, very small increased risk of having breast cancer. Also, the mortality from breast cancer is not increased. So there's a small association that 5 in 1,000 extra risk exists. But actually, if you look at the mortality following breast cancer, that's not altered if you're on HRT. So in the modern world, we have often kind of gone back uh, full circle to say what happened during early 21st century when the WHI trial results came out and scared everyone about the risk of breast cancer with HRT. Those trials are not applicable now. Why? Because they were done in much older women, having started HRT much later, and they were done with synthetic hormones in higher doses. Modern hormones tend to be much more milder, usually given in a dose which is smaller. They're more identical to human estrogen progesterone, and they have much lower risk of uh, breast cancer. If you're taking estrogen only and not needing the progesterone, then you don't seem to have any added risk of breast cancer from randomized trial data. So you would be much more even safer if you had a hysterectomy for some reason in the past and only had to have estrogen, that seems to not increase your risk at all. So it's only the progesterone that's the most important hormone there. Fascinating. And thanks for, for setting it all, all out so, so beautifully. You mentioned earlier, Vikram, that menopause usually happens between 45 and 55. Some women experience perimenopause and menopause much earlier. Why? What are the reasons? And talk about the impact on their lives and what can be done to adjust a woman's progression through this. So if menopause happens between 40 to 45, we call it as early menopause. 
If it happens below the age of 40, it's premature menopause. And the chances that someone may have early menopause are about 10%. 10% of women have early menopause. 1%, 1 to 2 in 100, will have it below the age of 40, which is premature menopause. It can even happen as early as in 30s or early 20s or even before puberty. So it can never say never if someone is presenting with classical signs, symptoms of premature menopause, it's really important to investigate. And this is one point I really want to kind of stress here that diagnosis of premature menopause seems to be having a lot of delays in the current healthcare setup. So we see women having stopped their periods or having gone without hormones for a year or two until we see them in specialist clinics. And that's very valuable time, which does have impact for long-term health. Because often it's thought that if a young woman is coming with symptoms of menopause, it can't be menopause. And often the patients will say, the doctor told me, you're too young to go through menopause. This can't be menopause. But it's really important to consider that as a diagnosis because Yes, there is that 1% to 2% individuals who will go through this premature menopause and it's a life-changing diagnosis, both psychologically and physically. Why early menopause or premature menopause happens? Uh, as I said before, it's something to do with ethnicity genes where you are born with a smaller store of eggs and you use them earlier in your life, in your late 40s or 30s. Or... It could be accelerated destruction of eggs in the ovary. So the ovaries stop making eggs hormones early in life, again, partly due to genetic predisposition or your background medical health. In about 10 to 20% of individuals, you can find other causes of premature menopause. For example, you may have a genetic chromosomal cause. For a, a Turner syndrome is the commonest, where there is 45X one of the X chromosomes is missing or is abnormal. You have fragile X syndrome where there's a premutation in the X chromosome that causes premature menopause. There are many other genetic mutations being found right now. So the number of genetic mutations we have discovered is increasing. And that can be immune causes. So sometimes your body's own immunity can fight against the ovaries. And immune causes could be autoantibodies, ovarian antibodies, which may be triggered by viral infections or other causes. In a small proportion of women, it could be infections, mumps or, or tuberculosis or metabolic disease such as galactosemia. These are uncommon causes of premature menopause. A big group, of course, is medically induced menopause. So, a number of young women individuals will have chemotherapy or pelvic radiation or have surgery to remove ovaries because they have tumors, cancer, cysts, endometriosis, and few other pathologies which affect ovaries or as part of cancer treatment in general. And they will, of course, go through a sudden acute menopause. And again, the point here is when it's a medical or surgical menopause, it comes without much warning. So these women can have sudden stopping of their hormones, very severe, quite significant, frequent symptoms. And there should be a plan in place before they have their medical intervention or surgery. What is to be done after they recover 
for their symptoms, for their long-term health. This is where we are not very good right now. But hopefully, as we make progress, we increase awareness. We will have this perioperative planning, perimedical treatment planning for these women in future so that we look after them better than what we are doing now. That's interesting. So I'd like to change topic. Tell it, you, you, your interest in polycystic ovary syndrome, something that one seems to hear a lot about in the news today. Um, tell us about it. Give us a sort of polycystic ovary syndrome 101, cause, symptoms, implications, diagnosis, treatments. Well, I could talk about COS for the whole day. You could talk for, for hours, I know, but just just give us the, you know, for those of us who know nothing. Okay, 10-minute crash course. So PCOS is very common. Almost every medical doctor would have heard about it and learned about it during their medical years. Uh, There's so much talk on social media now. A lot of women who suffer from PCOS have come forward sharing their experiences, just like with menopause. And that's very helpful when it's done in the right way with a positive connotation. PCOS simply means that ovaries contain lots of follicles, lots of eggs, more than average number of eggs, and they don't tend to develop and mature in the same way as they would for somebody without PCOS. So the ovaries tend to be bulky, they tend to have lots of follicles in them, and they tend to produce abnormal hormones, so increased number of male-type hormones, testosterone, androstenedione. And that causes an imbalance in estrogen and the androgen, the male factor hormones that causes lots of symptoms. We don't know what the cause of PCOS is, whether it's the ovary that is at fault. Is it a problem with something called insulin receptor recognition in the ovary? Or actually, is it a problem in the pituitary gland, which produces a hormone called LH in certain pulses or frequency? And it's thought that the pituitary LH pulses increase in those pulses then causes the polycystic ovary syndrome and the morphology of the ovary. So it's a little bit of a, a, a two sort of theories of how PCOS develops, a fault at the ovarian level and a fault at the pituitary level. One of the significant aspects of the syndrome, if it happens, is insulin resistance. So the tendency to put on weight, the tendency for insulin to work less efficiently and a risk of diabetes in pregnancy or later life That's a characteristic feature of PCOS for most women. The diagnosis is based on three things. One, symptoms of increased androgen male pattern hormones, such as excess body hair or thinning of scalp hair or lots of acne or a blood testosterone level, which is high. Second, is change to your periods. So your periods tend to be spaced apart once every two, three months rather than regular monthly bleeds, or you can skip periods for six months or even a year. And the third is a scan finding that shows multiple follicles or eggs in the ovary, and that's the scan criteria. So if you've got one out of these three, uh, two out of these three, sorry, then of course you will be diagnosed with PCOS. And that means not necessarily all women have to have a scan finding of PCO ovaries to be made a diagnosis of PCOS. Often that's the one thing that often primary care uh, physicians may miss. They think if your scan is normal, you can't have PCOS. That's not true. You can still have the hormones and the period changes problems without having a classical scan finding of polycystic ovary. 
So there are two main problems that happen with PCOS. One is, of course, the changes to the skin with acne, hair growth. And the second one is impact on periods. They become less frequent and often can cause subfertility because of lack of ovulation. Fertility problems can happen at a later stage. Psychological impact of the condition is quite significant and that's often missed as part of consultation. So when we did our studies and surveys through some projects, we found that women often say, I go to my doctor, I talk about PCOS, periods and fertility, but actually no one talks about how I'm feeling with all these acne, with the hair growth, it, it knocks my confidence off and I often don't get the psychological support I need. And that's something we got to do better. Treatment-wise, there are many treatments of PCOS, usually involve hormone manipulation, such as the contraceptive pill to suppress the excess hormones. You've got the progesterone pill. You've got the coil. You've got fertility treatments, such as inducing ovulation or IVF if the ovulation induction doesn't work. There are treatments for skin which are non-hormonal, such as spironolactone or other medications like finasteride or flutamide. There is metformin, both in terms of improving period frequency and if BMI is a problem. Weight loss, lifestyle modification underpins all this. So weight gain prevention can prevent additional symptoms from appearing or existing symptoms improve if, if weight loss is done. So it's a, it's a kind of multi-pronged lifestyle and medical approach with psychological support that in, in a nutshell sums up the treatment for PCOS and it has to be lifelong. So women with PCOS may have a higher risk of diabetes, higher risk of heart disease in future. So we recommend they have checks for this every two, three years with their GPs or specialists, even when they get to their 40s, 50s and 60s. It doesn't stop there. Women with PCOS tend to have slightly delayed menopause because they have more number of eggs follicles, they produce more hormone, they tend to have a two to three year delay in, in their menopause. So it's not just the disease of 20s and 30s and 40s that it's talked about. It's a condition that really needs attention even in later life. I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot in a short time, but I hope... <laughs> I well, you've covered, it, you've covered it brilliantly. And in the last few minutes... Um, You've written about estrogen deficiency in a number of articles um, on fracture rates um, and, and a range of implications of, of estrogen deficiency. Can you just give us a, a high-level view on uh, what's going on there? So estrogen, I always say, is a magic hormone. Um, and I'm, I'm often, uh, uh, when, I, when I tweet things on social media, I often sometimes get abused, say, you're not the person who should be talking about this, you're a man. Uh, but I say, I'm trying to do my best to spread the message in the right way. <laughs> so estrogen is a magic hormone. It's fantastic. It's fantastic for bones, for heart, for metabolism, for insulin function, for immune protection. And that's why whenever you study lack of estrogen, whether it's in women with POI, women who've had hyphrectomy, surgical menopause, or women who've had cancer treatments and menopause, and even beyond 50, when you look at the trends of uh, lifestyle and disease in 50s and 60s, you find that estrogen has so many impacts in a positive way on the overall health of a woman. It doesn't mean that everyone needs to take estrogen HRT. 
it needs that it just means that we need to consider it as one of the very useful hormones or options whenever we are in a situation where we think this medical condition could be as a result of lack of estrogen we haven't studied it enough as i was referring to the impact of estrogen on immunity we have not done enough work on estrogen with regards to viral infections or systemic infections we haven't studied it enough in chronic diseases such as arthritis sle or immune diseases of the type we haven't studied it enough post cancer what happens with very early surgically medically induced menopause how can we optimize the best way of giving estrogen and of course with relation to long term heart brain and bone health we we know a lot about bone and heart but we haven't done enough to study can it really be one of the options to prevent dementia in later life can we run some human evidence based clinical trials randomized trials to look at that which is why i always talk about estrogen deficiency because it's a key thing that often gets missed some women may be simply going through early menopause perimenopause menopause and they will be referred because of their symptoms to rheumatologist dermatologist they'll go through a hematologist sometimes a fatigue clinic only to then realize after seeing five six specialists that all that was happening right in the beginning with all these multiple symptoms is the menopause and you replace estrogen for somebody and it transforms their life so that's where estrogen deficiency comes into picture and something we have not addressed fully so far well i mentioned at the beginning about you living for a very long time so you can travel but i think we want you to stick around so you can continue to use what is obviously a a considerable brain to address uh these issues um uh, uh for 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 women's health so my final question to you vikram if you came across a magical genie who could grant you three wishes in your area of healthcare or frankly anything what would your wishes be well i can be very very uh, straight uh, look into the genie's eyes and say just make the the pcos disappear um or something like that that will become a too extreme i guess realistically actually if i had a genie who would say to me i can really do something for you i would say three things one take away the unpleasant bit of the menopause all those nasty symptoms because of lack of estrogen some women are sensitive to progesterone and have lots of side effects we don't want those can you take them away and just take the unpleasant bit out of it two we need lots of funding for women's health research this is something i'm really struggling with no support in terms of manpower in terms of actual funds and putting up trials or research as much as possible so lots of funds for me and third is um the tide of wrong information or negative information or sometimes factually incorrect information that spread online so if there was a way that the genie could make all this disappear and only keep evidence based factual information there for women to really know what they need to know rather than personal experiences or non evidence based information that would be the third wish fantastic well vikram i'm afraid that that's all we've got time for today and i'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us um it's been a real pleasure to speak with you and i'll look forward to having you back uh, uh in the future thank you thank you so much jonathan thank you for the opportunity i really enjoyed it and it's been my pleasure
Thank you. I'm, and I'm going to, it's inspired me that I'm going to go get myself a, a, a go and a cookery book. I think that will be my next week. I'll material. send you one. I'll send you one. <laughs> so folks, please join us again next week for what will be a doubtless another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. And don't forget to like us on social media so that you never miss an episode. Subscribe, 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 and check out our archives. There's loads of great episodes. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening. And please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Bye.